Kia ora. Welcome back to uh, the What a Load of Colony podcast. We're in episode three now of season two, The Conspiracy Files. This whole uh, season is dedicated to uh, the themes of conspiracy theories, misinformation and disinformation. I talk about those three things, but they are they are separate. We might actually use them interchangeably, but that when I'm talking about conspiracy theories in general, I'm talking about the ones that are might be true as well as not true, and not all conspiracy theories are not true or a load of rubbish. There are genuinely some groups that get together and collude uh, to abuse power, um, but there's also misinformation and disinformation that get tied up in some of those conspiracy theories. And so when I'm talking about misinformation, I mean the information that people might be passing on quite innocently and with good intentions, but they they believe that they're doing the right thing and they actually believe that what they're passing on is true as well. And then you've got disinformation, which is where people have a, a real intent to disrupt when they spread that information or when they develop that information and present it as fact. So we're talking about all of those things during this season. Uh, as you might recall, episode one looked at the uh, the history and the historical figures associated to misinformation and conspiracy theories. Uh, and then episode two looked at a culture of conspiracy. So what were the social ingredients that created this fertile seedbed for misinformation to to take root uh, and today in episode three we are going to be talking about the implications of conspiracy theories misinformation and disinformation and we have uh, Susie Wiles joining us today now Susie for those that have been watching the media around COVID in Aotearoa, you would recognise her. She's uh, a microbiologist. She works with Tipunaha Matatini uh, to develop resources and and create communication strategies to help us to understand some of the more complex aspects of COVID and epidemiology and public health. Uh, very smart lady, very clued into the importance of quality information. And so I brought her in to have a chat about the importance of that information and also what it's like to be wrapped up in a conspiracy theory because, like me, Susie has also been somebody that's had conspiracy theories created about her. And so we're going to be talking about the real life implications of conspiracy theories, as well as the social implications for conspiracy theories. So, uh, yeah, let's let's have a look at how that interview went. Mātakitaki mai. Tēnā koe, Susie. Thank you so much for um, making the time to have a chat with me about this. I am a huge and I really appreciate the work that you have put in um, to creating accessible um, public health information for our whanau around Aotearoa, your, especially your and Toby's work was just so accessible and really broke a whole lot of information down. I found it really inspirational as well. 
Um, so thank you, first of all. Uh, <laughs> and um, you might actually just first giving us a little bit of an introduction into who you are, where you're from, what you do, a little bit of a rundown. Yeah, so I'm, um, so I'm a microbiologist. Um, I run a research lab at the University of Auckland. I'm originally from the UK, um, but I have a bit of a weird, uh, a weird past. Weird, um, I, I, so I was born in the UK, but moved to South Africa when I was about four. And then when I was 15, we moved back to the UK. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and then um, I did my undergraduate degree in Edinburgh, so I moved to Scotland. Um, and then after that, I, uh, I did a PhD, um, and it was during, uh, um, during my PhD that I met a Kiwi who I subsequently married. And then when we had a, a baby, he um, said he wanted to come back to New Zealand. And so we moved back to New Zealand, well, I moved to New Zealand um, about 11 years ago. Uh, yeah, and so this is kind of where we're, we're bringing up our family. Um, and so for me, home and the sort of idea of where you're from has always been quite a difficult one because when I was in South Africa, I was very much felt like I had a, an English identity, although I was growing up as a South African kid. And then when we moved back to England, I was very clearly not English. <laughs> and then I moved to Scotland. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a bit of a weird thing. And moving to New Zealand has actually been the place where I've started to understand a bit more about where I'm from and um and and just yeah have all those complicated you know um kind of yes where 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 <laughs> what is my papa has been a quite an interesting little journey to go on um we'll take so, you we'll take you <laughs> as a tangata treaty your wonderful tangata treaty looking after our people so um, looking after, yeah, all, all of our people in Aotearoa, so yeah. And I feel very privileged to be here. It's also, you know, from, uh, uh, I guess, you know, being in a, a colony in South Africa with, you know, I mean, I spent many years, because I was about 15 when we left, and we left just as Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Um, my father was very unwell. Um, it, it, I suffered for many years of kind of like, but we, I should be there. I should be part of, you know, the new generation of how you rebuild the country. Um, but, you know, that, I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's been, um, I think it's been nice to feel like I can contribute to a society in, you know, in a way um, as an immigrant, I think. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like I've really been kind of welcomed so incredibly into, um, into New Zealand. It's been, it's been amazing. Um, yeah, so so I've got um, I've got a background. I'm a scientist, and as I say, I run this research lab. Um, and the thing, uh, um, I guess, the thing about me is that I think communication is really important, right? So, as a scientist, um, we you know we do we kind of ask questions about the world. For me, I, my real interest is in infectious diseases. Although I'm not an expert in viruses, my research is more around bacteria. Um, and I've um, so I've kind of you know ask questions about bacteria i've got lots of things that i'm interested in um but what tends to happen in in research is that we then you know we do these experiments and then we write scientific articles and we publish them in journals um and for a lot of my colleagues that's kind of where it stops um but i've always uh, had this kind of real um i guess it's, you know i'm, I'm a, essentially a public servant you know um, my research is funded by taxpayers or or actually directly by people's donations 
And so it's always been important to me that I um, that I give back, that people understand, you know, what I'm doing with their money. And so communication has always been really important. So for a long time, I think like basically 10 or 11 years, I've tried to learn how to communicate science in different ways to different audiences. Um, and at first it was very much, I, you know, I want you to know what I'm doing with your money. Now, of course, I realize it's uh, completely the wrong way around. And I'm also, you know, that I learned so much from different communities that helped me understand the kinds of questions I should be asking as well, rather than, you know, just me thinking what I should ask. So it's been an incredible sort of two-way thing. Um, but yeah, then it came to, so I've worked with artists and illustrators and cartoonists and all sorts of things leading up to COVID. Um, but it wasn't really until, oh, and I should also say that it's um, been a bit of a rocky road because it's not that valued <laughs> in our institutions. It's been seen as a oh, you know, you just do that thing, you need to focus on the research and, oh, you know. And the and, cons are a part yeah. of the dissemination. Yeah, so it's been an interesting ride, but I've always felt like, no, this is really important and I'm very stubborn, so I'm like, I'm going to stick with my guns and do this. And then when it came to COVID, um, it just, it's just shown how important <laughs> you need to, the communication to be, right? So for me, I feel like I've been, I've been training for this marathon for 10 years without really realizing it. And then came the, you know, come this huge thing. I was kind of had the right skill set to do, you know, and I just, I basically just started writing about um, COVID because it, I felt like people needed to understand what was happening and things were happening so fast and things were changing so fast um, that, you know, it just was like, oh, I got to need to do this. And I, and I basically put aside my main job to try and focus on this because it just felt so big, which is kind of back in February. Um, yeah, and then I, I basically, um, I most of my stuff was written or doing interviews and things. Um, and I saw this graph. Uh, so this was the concept of flattening the curve. Um, and I saw that graph uh, kind of being circulated on social media. And I was like, oh, okay, this is actually something that's, you know, the conversation is changing. People need to understand about this. So I was writing for the spin-off at the time. And I said to the spin-off, um, hey, so I'd really like to make a different version of this graph that I'm seeing going around. Do you think Toby Morris would be interested? Um, and the reason I said Toby Morris is because I've long admired his work. I love how he he really, you can see his values in his his comics. And so I just felt like that that's what it needs. Um, and so I just said, you know, would Toby be interested? And the reply was, I'm sure he would. Um, and then we just started working together from then, uh, you know, having never met before. It was just this perfect combination of the science knowledge that I have, Toby's incredible way of communicating and kind of putting those two things together for me feels like it's been greater than the sum of its parts. And it's just started what for me now is, I think, the most productive collaboration I've ever had. Um, and it really has illustrated to me as a scientist how what the impact that you can have from the communication side you know, not just your research. It's been, like I, I do research trying to find new antibiotics and this is a, you know, it's a big problem we, we face with antibiotic resistance. Um, and I always hoped that maybe that would help to contribute to something that, you know, might make me drug for people or whatever. But it was always a very small, you know, we're, we're a small step in that pathway. This has just shown me what a huge impact you can have by doing something as, as simple as, you know, making sure that people have good information in ways that they re that really connect with them. And so it's just been an incredible learning curve, you know, working with Toby has just been amazing. Um, and you know what, yeah. 
interesting what you're saying is, you know, for, for Māori, our, our experience is so often that we are researched on, not researched with, and we are always saying that people are researching on us, they come, they do their thing to us, then they go and then we never hear from them again. And, and we're always saying that, we're always saying, comms, talk with us, work it out with us, Tell, you know, like develop your research question with us and, and then, you know, give us the information in a way that's meaningful. Like you've traveled here to extract the information from us, travel here to explain the outcomes to us. Don't just send us a pamphlet in the, in the post and, and make sure that it's in ways that are relevant and meaningful to us and, and, and if possible, keep the relationship going with us. And I think in part, you know, the, the way in which um, governments and politics inform research agendas and, and define research timeframes inhibits the ability to have really good relationships but even aside from that we're always harping on about comms we're always saying talk with us establish relationships work it out with us not just on us and so what you're saying for me just you know that resonates for me yeah. maori research because that's what we've always said needs to happen as well but like yeah. how, you know, sorry carry on as i said the, the big thing the big problem we have, and I really worry this is going to get worse through COVID too, is that the research system we have really incentivizes not making those connections, right? We've got, we're, you know, we're full of people who have all these bright ideas, you know, that get all that funding and that, that run this very academic path. Um, and what I really am concerned about, especially at the moment of what's happening with, um, at Waikato, is that you know it needs a complete change in the people who are there, right? That the system is is keeps building the people who are who are doing science wrong, who are doing research wrong, um, uh, you know, for everybody, for indigenous communities, for everyone. Uh, and I really, you know, we do need a mass clear out that that ensures that the right voices are there to make sure we do the right research and in the right way. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you say, what is happening at Waikato is horrifying. Um, it's, it's, and that's just the one we can see where we, you know, we, I've got some incredible colleagues who've been, you know, who are just trying to put all the numbers in, right, to show how many Māori and Pacifica academics are there. That's just abysmal. And it's really um, just, yeah, all of this is linked in. And I think it's frustrating when you can see all those linkages, right, and say, well, we know what needs to be done. Why is nobody doing it? <laughs> well, I think like that's a, a little bit of what you're touching on there also is feeds into a part of the reason why people don't trust science now. And it creates the context and the culture for misinformation because, you know, the, the only reason that you can come up with at the end of the day is, is colonialism and, and racism and, and racial supremacy or superiority. What, because it's not anything that's, DNA, you know it's got to be systemic. We're not genetically inclined to not get jobs, <laughs> you know, and or to not reach particular positions. And so, you know, when you uh, come to the realization that there is systemic injustice going on, it lends itself to the question of, well, what else does that systemic injustice lend it, you know, create a space for? Does it create space for all of these other things? You, you don't have to have too much of an active imagination in order to to be suspicious and then 
if you do happen to be blessed with an active imagination, which Hollywood has blessed many of us with, then you can really take that idea and run with it, right? Yeah. It was, it was very confronting for me, you know, as somebody who, um, I got into infectious diseases because I'm fascinated by the, by the microbes, you know, I really, I was reading, um, the, the, the book that really got me into this is called The Fireside Book of Deadly Diseases. So I read this as a teenager, it was about tuberculosis, um, it was about plague. So, you know, these infectious diseases, pandemics, epidemics that have really um, altered human history, you know, and so I got really fascinated by the microbes themselves. I feel so naive now as well. It's kind of funny, you know, like how do these little creatures, you know, do what they do? And of course, they have very specialized way of interacting with our cells and, you know, manipulating us. But what we know, you know, like what we can clearly see during the pandemic is the microbe is just one small part of this, right? And it is entirely about the ecosystem in which it is you know, that the organism appears that changes everything. And so this focus on the microbes rather than thinking, you know, about this interaction. So we call it a disease triangle. So it's basically the microbe, the host, and the environment. And I don't just mean like, you know, um, I mean, by environment, I mean socio-political, you know, everything. And so what we're seeing with the pandemic is, is this just on a large scale, right? You can see injustice, you can see all of the things that make communities vulnerable, and it's nothing to do with their DNA, really. Mm. You know, there might be some little tweaks, but it's so much more about politics and colonialism and racism and things. And, um, and I, I'm an optimist, so I would hope that what we see is like, whoa, like this is like wrong and we have to fix it. If, you know, if to get through not only this pandemic, but the future ones and all of the other um, things we've changed. Um, and it just, it's, you know, the other thing the pandemic has shown is also is that we can make rapid change and dr drastic change. So why would we not? And I think um, yes. it's a bit disappointing to sort of go, you know, don't, don't do it half-assed. <laughs> Let's fix this stuff. You know, it's, it's fixable. Um, but it requires people to, you know, it requires us to make sacrifices in different ways. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we know from all the research that communities that come out of disasters the best are those that work together and that, you know, think of the collective good. And so we need to do that on a country scale and we need to do it on a global scale. But, you know, we can start right here in Aotearoa, right? But sectorally um, as well, eh? And so, you know, within the sector, we need to, and this is exactly what has come to a head at Waikato is, is just the injustice within the sector, within the, the critic and conscience of society. And we can see that issues like racism and colonialism are ubiquitous, you know, particularly 2020 has highlighted how it's ubiquitous across our society. So what does that mean for the critic and conscience of society then to, you know, and their role in it and their responsibilities and responsiveness when racism is called out within that the critic and conscience of society how do we expect them and how do, what are the standards that they hold up for themselves um which we would certainly hold for the rest of society what are the standards that they would hold for themselves to respond to that and so yeah i just and the commercialization and commodification of science i remember when i was working in research centers a few years ago just watching like I happened to be in a research center at the change of at a change of government when we switched over to national and I saw the head of the research center just go 
oh well out with the old research agenda we need to figure out what the you know what this new government is going to want us to research and then reframe our agenda around that and that's how we'll get our funding and that's how we'll keep a job and, yeah. and i was like that's just that's so and then and then that goes into treasury and then treasury you know figure out their budget you know well the you know the ideology of the gov of the government they'll figure it out and then treasury will release their budget and then that's how we create science and it's such a self-serving science cycle that you can see mm -hmm. how you know people come to mistrust science because there are commercial interests at play you can't you can get science for sale you can get you know for sale bias yeah so and I've, so that's something that I've been banging on a lot around the misinformation is, issues are that government and science and media, which seems to be the three areas that, that um, conspiracy theorists really pin their, their theories on, is that you can't trust them, you can't trust them, and you can't trust them, and here's why. And so, but you, I can see why that's not there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> and I think one of the, one of the problems with, um, with science and scientists is that um, there's this, this real belief that it's kind of um, objective, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, the, I, I think the more objective you think you are, the less objective you actually yeah. are. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, there's this real kind of like, oh, you know, um, it's just giving you the answer and, you know, none, none of this real understanding that it's, there's complications and nuances and that who you are completely influences the lens through which you look at evidence and you ask questions and stuff. And so for me, the big revelation has been that you have to show what your values are so that people understand where you're coming from, why you might research a particular thing or why you're asking the questions you are, and then what, how you're going to interpret the evidence that you get. And it was very interesting. Early on in the pandemic, I did... Um, quite a few interviews in with the UK media and all they wanted to know is what did New Zealand know like what evidence that you have that was different to the UK that made you do something different and I said there was nothing everybody saw what was happening in China and in Italy you know well I was horrified by the idea that in order to deal with the virus you had to build new hospitals in 10 days right that was showing that clearly a lot of people are getting sick um, and that the Italians were saying their doctors were having to um, basically decide who got a ventilator or not. So the, the doctors were making decisions over which patients were worth saving, worth saving um, versus not because of the limited resources. And so I said, everybody saw that, which clearly shows this is a huge deal. And if you don't act, you know, quickly enough, you will be like Italy. And but governments um, acted differently depending on what they valued. And that was the fundamental thing that was different. And it was so, yeah, it was kind of a really confronting thing, I think, to think about that you might, you know, it wasn't like people were missing bits of the puzzle. They just chose to act differently because they had a different set of values. And that I think is fundamental to everything. And so what I've been, and this is important for misinformation and disinformation too, is to say, well, whose agenda are you serving by sharing this? what are the values of the people and it's very hard because sometimes things can be you know they're started by somebody with a very particular agenda and set of values but by the time they're being shared it's kind of it's 
different, right? The people who might be sending it to you have got a different set of values to what started it. But understanding all of these underlying things, you know, understanding why people are um, distrustful of information is really, really important because that's how we get to, you know, you, you, you don't, you have to have a conversation about what's going on yeah. <laughs> in order to happen. We, uh, we do that by, you know, talking to the people that are around us, that are closest to us. Yeah, yeah it's sorry. Right. We've just got a vacuum cleaner has just started near me, so I don't know whether that's going to affect our sound at all. <laughs> I can hear, no, you're all good. I heard it start up, but it's kind of just melted into the background now, so I don't hear it. It's all good. <laughs> uh, the same thing my darling said to me just before I started this, he goes, oh, chainsaw will be too loud, eh? I went, yes. Wait till this afternoon, please. <laughs> all right. Um, so, but you know, there there was something that you, oh yeah, there was something you touched on just then also, which is around about how you know this isn't. It's it's not as simple as saying oh well the science is the science, but we do see a lot of people responding in that way, and we also see a lot of people saying that you know this is about how intellectual you are or how clever you are or even like what I get quite worried about is. Um, people making mental health insults as well and thinking that that's somehow going to fix the situation um, which you know if, if I'd just be really keen to hear your reflections on that like it, we definitely as I've just said it's not just that the science is the science we need to understand and respect the context that this is all coming from as well right it's also you know I really feel for the general public at the moment because you know, what we are seeing is research kind of happening on steroids, right? I mean, we are seeing stuff done really fast. We're, um, we're also seeing people jump in. I'm going to call this um, kind of academic profiteering. So we're seeing people, you know, with not great expertise in the area kind of jumping in. And sometimes that's really good because it brings a fresh perspective. But sometimes it also ends up really misleading stuff because they actually don't understand the nuances. And so they'll say, oh, this is what's happening. And it's actually not true, right? So... Um, so we're seeing both the kind of best and the worst of science and research happening, but we're seeing it happen really fast. And so this, you know, the, the idea that when people are um, publishing new information and in, in, um, within um, science, you know, everyone's kind of going, oh, you know, which way is it? What does this mean? You know, it's the, it's the building up of evidence that helps you understand what the picture is, right? Um, and so what people are, because everything's coming to the public so fast, you know, people are saying, I mean, masks is a great example, right? It's like, don't wear masks, wear masks. And so all you see are these two positions and they're like, well, what's changed? And actually, and I get this one all the time because in the very early days of the pandemic, I was just like, yeah, no, you know, masks need to be kept for healthcare workers. And that was because they uh, were in short supply <laughs> and they very clearly needed as part of the protective equipment to protect people who are caring for people with COVID who are at higher risk of infection. And this is what we know masks are about, you know, they, they, that's what they're part of a, a package of things. How we're using them now that, that, um, that there's more around and we can make them, it's not about protecting us from infection, it's about protecting everyone else in case we are infected. So there's really clear reasons why we said don't wear them in the beginning and why we say wear them now. But nobody sees that nuance, nobody sees what we were thinking and how it was changing. It just becomes like, oh, well, you flip-flopped. And, and there was really good reason for that. So it's kind of, 
this is also why I like um, being able to do the communication with Toby and being able to say, look, you know, I can I can put all my reasons why things have changed. I can explain to you. But often in a TV interview or, you know, as it's been presented in the media, you never see that nuance. So it's very, it's very, um, it's really hard, I guess, for people to, to understand what's going on. So I've also tried through the communications to explain the process of science and to say, you know, things do change. And the point about a scientist is that as the evidence changes, you're supposed to change with it. Yes. And the thing that has been really, really hard to accept as a scientist have been those experts who won't change their position, who just find and cherry pick evidence to keep their position. And we're seeing a lot of them, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. Because then you also get this, ah, but that expert says so-and-so, and you say that, and it's like, <laughs> I can't see that. I, all I can tell you is why I've changed my mind, what the evidence is telling me. I can tell you about my values and why, and how I'm evaluating that evidence. And I would ask the other person to do the same, and um, and that's kind of often where things fall down. Is you don't you don't have you know you don't see all this background stuff, and then it just becomes a fight between experts um, and some who actually I feel are completely misleading people by not sciencing right. And it's that idea that that um, even just about truth and knowledge that there is a single truth out there just waiting to be found from a person and it's immutable and once that truth is found then that's it. <laughs> yeah. Not that science is this ever evolving process and, and journey towards um, a truth that's right in that time and that you know and that it moves with time as well. Yeah. And so And if um, we also get back to this disease triangle, right? Things that work because the environment is so important. There are things that might work in some countries that just won't work in others because of all sorts of things, whether that's socio-political, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, this is really hard. And I think it's the thing that people do need to understand as a background for knowing why things are changing and, and what's going on. But you're actually right, you know, also this, and that this is something that, you know, Western science has been really bad at, is this idea that you're looking, you're seeking the truth and you only have one way to find it rather than actually, you know, there are lots of different ways and lots of different ways of interpreting things. Um, and you absolutely have to understand context and where you are to, um, you know, to understand that. And it feels like it's something that really needs to be taught. Not just in school, but as scientists are coming in, you know, they really need to understand the, the models and methods in which they're learning you know are very much with a colonial lens and that doesn't mean that they're right yeah 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 um and so you know we've kind of already inferred all of this and what we've said before but do you want to just give a, a just a quick kind of summary around how important now in reflection of the last you know nine months <laughs> or so how important do you see information quality information being in relation to COVID? It's absolutely, absolutely crucial. Um, and, and what we have to accept as people who um, are out there trying to help deliver information is that you might not be the right person for that. <laughs> and you might not be putting the information in a way that um, is appropriate for your audience. So I think understanding that you, know, you, um, that you might not be the right person um, that you should maybe help 
you know, or work with somebody who can put the right information in the right context for whoever needs it. You know, that, there's no one solution for everybody, right? That things need to be tailored depending on, on who um, gets information. And I think you're absolutely right that it's this, um, that it is the, you know, it is by working together that you then understand what is the information that different communities need. Um, and that's, you know, the thing that really concerns me at the moment, so obviously here in Auckland, we have the Auckland cluster, um, and there's been a little offshoot of that cluster, um, which we're told now is some people who maybe didn't believe the science at first or something. And so, you know, we've had people say, oh, you know, it's like jail them, and we've had other people get really angry, and it's like, well, let's stop, <laughs> don't get each other, and let's figure out what what is it that was behind them not understanding or believing how do we deal with that because we need to know how to deal with that in order to prevent it happening again right and the more heavy-handed you go in and start chucking stones at people the worse it will get the more you will reinforce their beliefs and then the, and then potentially the bigger this outbreak will get and so that's a real it is you know it's again it's about communicating with each other about you know about those people who maybe don't understand why people might have different views for them to go on a bit of a journey themselves rather just thinking that they know the answer and they know the information that people need to get i think that's really important and then i think on, on both sides of it though um i you know i've been saying to a lot of out my own whanau and it's something that i say to myself too which is keep your calm <laughs> They go off, they go off, but you know, and be understanding and understand where they're coming from. But by the same token, it can be really hard when you believe that your own whānau or community are at threat from the from from people who don't want to take it seriously. And so the emotion, like it's just such an emotionally charged space when you believe, especially if you have, you know, for your kaumāko, for your elders or if you are um, immunocompromised or, you know, or you have children who are immunocompromised or people that you care for who you believe they are placing at risk. Then I can see why people are so frustrated that they, um, that they, you know, turn to this other space. But I just try to think about it in the space of we've just been more practical. And I had, I had a whānau member call me and say, you know, um, and another one messaged me and say, I was down the rabbit hole, Tuzzy, <laughs> and, um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for some of the stuff that you've said around asking people to just understand us and where we're coming from, and it is making me think twice now about a lot of that stuff, but they all, they both said to me that when people just insulted me and said that it was because I was dumb. It just made me dig my heels in because I felt it attacked. I yeah. didn't feel like I was learning anything. I just felt attacked. Well, and, and it's wrong because we actually know, you know, there's huge amounts of research done on the fact that social media platforms are designed to weaponize information to, to make sure that it's shared that well. And that when people feel like they're doing their research, they really do genuinely feel like they're doing their research. Actually, what, they, what they're doing is being manipulated by social media platforms. And so what, what I think what we need alongside this understanding of the reasons why people are believing information is also a massive education campaign around how social media platforms work, how this information spreads, 
it is designed to do that. You know, people have put time into these algorithms. You know, it's amazing how people can start with pretty benign views and the research shows that algorithms will push you, they'll polarize you because that's what they're designed to do. And the heartbreaking thing, I think, is that, you know, we've become really, like these platforms, again, are both amazing and horrible, right? You know, we use them to connect with each other and share information. And, and you know, I use Facebook to connect with all my friends around the world. And yet, it's this evil thing that is manipulating all of us. And it's just heartbreaking that, you know, we can't, there seems to be no real will to deal with that. But people need to understand that's, that's, that's what these platforms do. It's not their fault. They, they are... They are being manipulated and it's kind of heartbreaking. I, I really wish we could do something about it. Yeah, but you're, no, you're so right though. And that's one of the reasons why I started the, the podcast and one of the whole episodes around the podcast is to really have us try to think about how are we dealing with information? Like the, if you look at the way that information, just over our lifetime, the way that the information scape has changed from... I think it was, it's like a one exabyte, one to two exabytes in the the early 90s, 80s and early 90s of information being stored and transmitted around the world. And now it's like, I think it was like two billion terabytes moving around the world of information. And so, you know, that's, and I I was reading like all of the equivalents and blowing my mind, which is like, even back in 2007, the amount of information flying around would have been the equivalent of 4,500 stacks of books going from planet to the sun. Wow. Every person on Earth reading 147 newspapers a day. And so that's, you know, when you compare that to, you know, when I was younger, you know, information was, you got it from a library, you read it in a book, you saw it on television and there was public health broadcasts and we had three channel two. Well, we had two and then it was, whoa, three channels. <laughs> and and now it's, um, but also there was some public ownership over the channels and, and media at that time as well. And there was a level, I guess, of accountability. Now it's just this open slather of information and there's social, you throw social media into that and that's just a whole nother beast. But there's just information coming at us from all angles and we haven't adapted to that. It's been a massive change, different beasts that we're dealing with. So just some of those core questions around how do we process information? How do we deal with it? And, and how do we prepare our children for an information scape that is nothing like what we grew up with as well? Yeah. And, and I think the thing that's hardest is to know that people are creating false stuff. And, you know, it's not like, I mean, you can make whole movies, right, that look, have incredible production values. There are all these people interviewed with PhDs. And so it's like, well, that looks legitimate. And yet it's not. And I, you know, in full irony, as somebody who creates content and has a PhD, you know, how, <laughs> You know, why would you trust me versus somebody else? This is yeah. such a hard question to answer, which is why I kind of come back to, well, we need to, you need to see people's values, right? And do you connect with those values or do you not? What is the ulterior motive? You know, one of the things I will say quite categorically is that I, I've not been, um, for me, I see the communication as part of my job, 
right? So I am paid as a as a lecturer at the university. I have a sort of a part of my contract is research, part is teaching, and part is service. I would kind of consider this service. I'm not paid to do this by anybody else. But if I was, I would, you know, you, you need to disclose this stuff too, right? Saying these are my sources of income. Um, and that's, you know, this is, this is really, I get lots of people saying, you're clearly being paid by this, or you're being paid by that, or, you know, a big one is the Gates Foundation, you're being paid by the Gates Foundation. It's just like, well, I can show you all my receipts. <laughs> there are none. <laughs> you know? I'm being paid by WWF, which apparently makes me in cahoots with the Dutch royal family. <laughs> it just becomes this very kind of, um, for some people, you just, you know, I've tried to be really um, honest. So we can talk about the conspiracy theory that I'm involved in, but, you know, people keep saying, you know, you're paid by so-and-so, or, you know, what's the, what's the story about this number? Like, well, I'm very, you know, I'm very open about it. I've written about it many times. I'm happy to take you through every step. And some people go, oh, thanks. I've read some stuff and this, now you've answered that. And other people are just like, well, you're clearly lying. It's like, there isn't really anything I can do about that. That's right. I mean, Ify, there's only so much you can do as well. And I think that's a part, the same when we're talking with, about talking with whānau who are down the rabbit holes. There's only so far you can go down the conversation before they just say, well, that's all a lie and I know the truth and you don't. And at that point, you're kind of like, well, all right, well, then let's just draw the line there and we'll, we'll try to maybe pick it up a little bit later or talk about stuff we do agree on. But, but, you know, when it gets to the point where people are just saying, yeah, but you're lying. I mean, I've tried to explain to people a lot as well. I'm not paid by WWF. In fact, I'm not paid by anybody in relation to that Okumura work, um, that, that, which is the conspiracy theory that sits around me which, and it extends to um, either being paid um, by the government. I'm not, I'm not employed by the government or that I am employed by Shell Oil <laughs> and that I have um, connections to the British and Dutch royal family. It's quite glamorous conspiracy theories. I, I'd like, I'm like, wow, at least we went high. <laughs> you know, so, but anyway, I, you know, it's, 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 I mean, I joke about it, but it's also been really traumatizing at times too there was a time and you know because this isn't new for me i've had this happen two years ago as well and back then we had people put guns in their truck and come looking for my cousins and myself and and they made threats against our whanau as well um and and some of those things not i wouldn't say particularly about me but when it started to talk about my children became traumatizing how how has it been how has it been for you being the centre of, of conspiracy theories? I think it's important for us to discuss because people think that this stuff is online and mm. then it doesn't have any real world implications mm. because they don't realise that the people that they're talking about are really affected by these mm. things. Yeah, so um, the, I can explain what the conspiracy is around me. So um, there is a... Um, there's, there's basically a conspiracy around um, Bill Gates wanting to microchip the world, I believe is, is the idea. Um, and apparently this project is codenamed Luciferase. So Luciferase is the name of um, these incredible enzymes that creatures like glowworms, fireflies, uh, use to make light. 
Um, and uh, somebody actually went and did some digging. So the, I, the name comes from, um, it's Latin. Uh, it was the Latin word for Venus, um, and it means light bringer. So it's to do with where Venus is in the, in the fact that it's one of the bright, you know, morning stars and stuff. And so it got, it, it's called Lucifer. I have no idea what the connection is to Satan, because obviously Satan is also often referred to as Lucifer. Um, or an angel or something, I don't know. But anyway, there was this guy who named these enzymes luciferases because they make light. So he, to him, that was like, light bringer, perfect. Um, and in my job, um, so my entire career has been based on using these enzymes to make bacteria grow in the dark so that we can find medicines, um, find, find out all sorts of stuff about them. Um, and the idea is that Basically, when the bacteria glow, if you kill them or if they die, then their lights go out. So it becomes a really quick way of doing kind of discovery of medicines and things, things that kill bacteria. So my entire career has been, I work with luciferases. I engineer them into bacteria and then I try and find medicines and do stuff. Um, and many years ago, like more than 10 years ago, I got, I was part of a big um, funding application um, from the, um, the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which uh, was interested in trying to make the bacteria that causes tuberculosis glow in the dark. And so that's what my team and I did. We made this glowing um, tuberculosis. We had money for maybe three or four years. It, um, we would have paid a little bit of my salary, but also paid the scientists who actually did all the hands-on work. And it probably finished maybe in about 2010 or 2011, that funding finished, and I've never had any money since. Um, so, this conspiracy then is basically, well, Susie Wilde works on luciferases and had Gates funding. So therefore, Susie Wilde is the New Zealand arm of this conspiracy theory. And I'm like, well, I, you know, and, and because of the name of the enzymes, luciferases, and the connection with Lucifer, this has become now it's, you know, it's Satan worshipping pedophile ring. Yeah, so it's just become this incredible, like, I, you know, there's like bits of factual information that you can pull together and turn them around and turn them into something that's really not true. And the other thing that's kind of funny too, so I, um, as I said, I've done in the past uh, work with artists and things. So what we, what we do is um, we take a, a bacteria that naturally glows in the dark. It comes from, um, from the sea. It lives in the bums of fishes. Um, I isolated one years ago so we could use it for art projects. So it's completely harmless. Um, we get artists and school kids, anybody, frankly, who wants to play with it. So the idea is that you get a petri dish, um, which has got the jelly that bacteria grow on, and we give them a little solution of this bacteria they draw on the jelly with the bacteria and it's kind of like drawing um on jelly with invisible ink so you can't see what you're doing but overnight the bacteria grow and then they glow and so the next day you get these incredible glowing artworks what? and so we've done exhibitions I've, you know, I've gone into schools oh i've um, done that for our kura <laughs> we, we, i will make that happen i will come we will do that because it is so much fun we will put on we will do a thing we will make an art exhibition it's, it's so much fun anyway so what we also do is post pictures of all the artworks on online and so people have found these pictures that that children or the people that uh, you know that have come to our, our displays have, have done things like poop 
emojis and butterflies and Hello Kitties and, you know, all sorts of just little designs on these little packages. And they've basically taken them as being satanic symbols. And so people, so again, this, this completely, this thing that I do so that people can connect with science, can understand a little bit more about bacteria, makes this really cool thing that we put up on the internet to show, or, you know, pictures has become another part of this art. You're clearly satanic because of all these satanic symbols. And I'm like, it's a butterfly. <laughs> it's not a satanic symbol. And I didn't even paint it. <laughs> it was painted by some 10 year old. Um, anyway, so yeah. They take these things that are a little, they take the kernel of truth. And, and that's a little bit of what makes it so hard. I mean, there, there are pedophile rings. There is child trafficking going on. We should be taking that seriously. Um, there, you know, science is commercialized. And, and, and so they take those little kernels of truth and, and then they extend it out. So yeah, there are child, you know, child trafficking and pedophile rings, definitely. Is but that does not mean Hillary Clinton automatically mean Hillary Clinton is a Satan worshipping baby eating pedophile, you know, and, and the, the evidence for that just isn't there. And so they'll they'll take evidence of one thing and present it as as evidence for the entire story. And the really sad thing is it it completely detracts from the real thing, right? I mean and it also pushes people's energy away from you know, either addressing the real thing or doing their actual job. Um, you know, I mean, this has been, I mean, I'm trying to develop a thick skin, but it is hard when people are attacking you and saying, you know, you satanic witch. And it's like, well, gosh, I'm just here trying to get people excited about microbes or to understand what's going on. You know, I'm, I, just, I, I just wanted to act together to save people's lives. Um, we're not doing it for money. You're not doing it for fame. We're doing it because we we care about humanity <laughs> and yeah. each other, right? Yeah. And I yeah. totally appreciate the work that that you've put in for for all of for all of us. You know, we've all benefited from it. Um, is there anything because that we've kind of covered pretty much everything <laughs> that I wanted to. However, I think we've kind of talked about, you know, what are the implications for, for misinformation. I mean, obviously the it's implications huge. are huge, especially yeah. as we're moving into, like I always felt, we call it kotahitanga, and I always felt that our kotahitanga at the community level is really what helped us get the success that we had. You know, we ran some checkpoints, but even the kotahitanga was behind the checkpoints as well. We couldn't have run them if we didn't have the support of our local community. We don't have the support unless people are on the same page, right? Yeah, and I think what people have to realise is we are in this for the long run. You know, like even if we just think a year ahead, um, we know this is a tricky virus. You know, we can have really great procedures in place, but, you know, things can slip through. And so we mustn't give up. And we need to do whatever we, you know, we all need to play our part in order to make sure that we save lives. You know, this is, this is going to become more and more important as time goes on because it's getting worse and worse in many other countries. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, what, and what we need to remember is that we are being actively 
you know, there were people in our communities, people in you know, positions of great um, influence who are actively trying to, to basically break up that unity for their own purposes. And we just need to be really mindful. This is going to get worse, right? Um, we can't just say, oh, okay, well, we'll give up then and let it come because that will be devastating for many of our communities. Um, and it's going to be very sad if it takes death within a community for people to see that. We want to avoid all that, you know. We want to learn from what's happening overseas and protect, um, you know, and have a lifestyle here that might be very different from what others are experiencing overseas. And the risk would be in that instance that it's not just one or two deaths. The risk would be that, you know, by the time those one or two deaths happen, it's well established in your community and you're going to actually have many. And yeah. that's the risk that you run if you wait until the deaths to start happening before you take it seriously, right? Yeah, because we know that the deaths lag by many weeks. And so if you're starting to get deaths, it's already pretty, pretty big. Not that, but again, not that we could ever not turn it around, but the more we work against each other, the harder it becomes. Absolutely. Oh, look, I don't want to, I think that is the perfect point to wrap it up on. The more that we work against each other, the harder it becomes. And that's the power of, of kotahitanga, of, of working together on this. Look, thank you so much, Susie, for your time and for everything that you're doing for our people. And I'm so going to take you up on um, that project for our kura. I just can Absolutely. see that our kids would love it. I know my kids would love it. I'd love it. I'm going on that day. <laughs> Awesome. No, it's a genuine offer. I'd love to come. It would be great. Fantastic. All right, then. We'll catch you up soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So there it is. I hope you enjoyed uh, that. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Susie, and I'm definitely looking forward to catching up with her again. Uh, and we have a few more people to interview. In the next episode, we're going to be chatting with Jess Berenson Shaw. And we're going to be talking about the Aotearoa context. So how did, how did this stuff come into Aotearoa? And why do we pick it up? And also, how do you talk with whanau who might be down the rabbit hole? Uh, so Jess has written a book about uh, misinformation and disinformation and also how do we communicate with each other around these issues. We're going to start moving into that space of talking about the solutions. So I uh, hope you can join us for the next episode on uh, the What a Load of Kalani podcast, Conspiracy Files, Season 2. Hey, Kona. Yeah.